The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. This is the part of worship where we get to actually, we study the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, uh, finalized about 2,000 years ago. We believe God providentially, through his Holy Spirit, put the Bible together for humanity so that even the events we're looking at today happened 2,000 years ago because God's author, the one he selected, wrote it down, and also the Holy Spirit of God himself preserved the very words he wanted us to know and has preserved this for 2,000 years. We can open up a 2,000-year-old book and be guaranteed, especially as Christians, because we have faith in God's word, that what we're reading is true. What we're reading is true history. Beyond that, it's, it's supernatural. It's not just any other book. So we've been doing that in the book of Acts in your New Testament. So that's where we're going to be today. So go, I would encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 27. The book of Acts is only 28 chapters in your English Bible. So we only, we're nearing the finish of this wonderful book of how the whole book of Acts is about, picks up with Jesus' resurrection. And then when he ascended and went back into heaven in a resurrection body and commissioned his 12 apostles to start the church. And God blessed that, and then the church just exploded there in Jerusalem and then began to spread, not just in Palestine or Israel, but to the uttermost parts of the earth through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And from Acts chapter 9 now to Acts chapter 27, we have been looking at the ministry of the Apostle Paul, who was an apostle who came after the 12 apostles. And we've looked at 30 years of his, almost 20-plus years of his ministry now. And now he's nearing the end of his life. It's 59 A.D., he probably started his ministry after getting saved about after 35 A.D. He's been planting churches all over the then-known world in the Roman Empire. And then in about 59 A.D., he was going back to Jerusalem to do a kind thing, and that was bring a bunch of money he collected from all these other churches to give to the poverty-stricken Christians in Jerusalem. And while doing that, he was out in public in the temple worshiping as a Jew, a Christian Jew, but as a Jew, and Jews who were not Christians arrested him on the spot, chained him up, beat him almost to death, called him a criminal, falsely accused him. And he's been in jail virtually and in chains ever since, and that, that picked up in about Acts chapter 22. So for the last five chapters, over the course of two plus years, we see the Apostle Paul, who is a Christian, represents Jesus. All he does is go around and tell people the good news about how you can be forgiven of your sin. That's all he does. And tries to help people. He loves people. He's God's representative. He does talk to people about their sin. That's what makes them mad. Nobody likes to be told about their sin. But he says you can be forgiven of your sin. And because of that, he got arrested and falsely accused. And he's been subjected to all these false kangaroo court trial cases where he can't get any justice and finally because he was a jew trained in jerusalem but he was also a roman citizen which was rare and so he had rights and privileges that many did not have and so after all these false trials he said i appeal to caesar that is my right as a roman citizen and so the governor in palestine honored that request and so now paul's going to be sent across the mediterranean sea hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles very dangerous, so that he might go to Rome and actually have court before Caesar. And the Caesar at this time in 59 AD 
was Nero. And we know about Nero. And that's where Paul's headed. So in Acts chapter 27, the entire chapter of Acts 27, it's a long chapter. It's got 44 verses. And the entire chapter is virtually Paul on the Mediterranean Sea, going from Caesarea, where Israel is, and then going west all the way eventually to Italy and Rome. And Acts 27 describes that journey. And it's a, a horrific journey because the weather was terrible. It's a horrible time. It's, it's uh, October or early November when Paul is sailing at this time. Late October, early November, 59 A.D. And we know from history that that was the worst time you could sail on the Mediterranean Sea. And we see the results of that on this journey by the Apostle Paul. And so last week we covered the first 26 verses where Paul departed from Caesarea on a little ship and they went five, six, seven hundred miles up north to Asia Minor and they picked up and they transferred ships and he was entrusted to a, a Roman soldier or centurion, an influential Roman centurion who apparently was directly accountable to Caesar and Caesar alone. So he was a prestigious Roman soldier called a centurion, commander in the army, had a lot of authority, highly respected, well-trained, and he is responsible for getting Paul from Caesarea, almost a 1,000 miles over to Rome so that he can have his day in court before Nero, the Caesar of Rome. And so as they're traveling in a ship, they transfer ships as they get to Asia Minor, and the Roman centurion has Paul who's shackled, and he, Paul was allowed to bring his friends Luke, who was an associate of Paul and a Christian, but also a medical doctor by way of profession so he could help Paul. Paul was probably suffering some kind of physical ailment severely at this point, let alone being seasick in light of what we saw last week where on the Mediterranean a violent, vicious hurricane of a storm came upon the Mediterranean and just about destroyed the ship that he was on. And now we left them floating adrift in the Mediterranean Sea, by the way. That's where we left them last time. But he's got Luke with him, and he's also got a, a disciple named Aristarchus or with Paul. But Paul's probably in chains because he's a prisoner on this ship that they leased up there in Asia Minor. They got on this big ship, so there's the Roman centurion, Paul and his two friends, and then a whole bunch of other prisoners who are also chained. They're also on this ship. And the, the big ship that they leased there in Asia Minor to try to make it hundreds of miles more all the way to their destination was a wheat or grain ship from Alexandria, Egypt, meaning it was a pretty massive vessel and probably one of the few ships because it was big enough that could actually handle being out in the open sea in the Mediterranean, especially, especially at that time. So uh, there are all kinds of people on this ship. There, there's the Roman centurion and probably some, and some of his soldiers. There's uh, a captain. There are sailors on this ship, and it required many because the ship was so massive. Prisoners on the ship with Paul, we don't know how many prisoners. A lot of people who make their money transferring grain on this ship because it's a grain ship. That's what it is. And they were allowed to ride on this grain ship that was headed to Rome. So there's a total of 276 men on this ship. And we don't quite know the breakdown of the demographics of all the individuals, but we do know for sure to a, to a head it was 276 persons in all on this massive ship. And where we left off last week was verse 26 and what we saw then was, as they got up to Asia Minor, they traveled 70, 700 miles. And then when they got to uh, the bottom of Asia Minor, 
and they wanted to keep going straight, but they couldn't. A hurricane wind came in, down and just blew and resisted the ship, and it couldn't go straight anymore, so they just went south. And they just kind of let go and said, wow, we, we can't handle this. Let's just let the wind take us where it will. And it did. It took them south down to Crete, big island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And that's where we left off as they are hugging this island of Crete just to try to protect themselves from the massive hurricane wind. Imagine where we are in verse 27 now, just setting the scene, is Paul has already spoken up two times on this trip. They've been traveling for days and days, maybe even weeks at this point. Paul is a prisoner. He has no rights. He is a nobody. They don't know he's an apostle. They don't even recognize him accordingly. He's probably just got chains and prison garb, and that's all they know. Although the for whatever reason, the centurion did respect Paul and gave him some rights and privileges and was courteous to Paul. He knew, he knew that Paul was different, maybe because he was a Roman citizen or he had heard things about Paul that made him unique. Nevertheless, they're on this ship. Paul has no rights. And then they get into a point where a hurricane comes along on the Mediterranean Sea. It became so dark that it said for days and days the sun did not shine and nor did they see stars at night. So they were in just utter darkness for now close to two weeks on end in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the Mediterranean, just past Crete. And because there is no sun and there has been no stars for days, these sailors have no idea where they were. They didn't have compasses like we do or GPS. The way they got around was the sun and the stars and the moon. And it has been pitch black for days. And now they are absolutely, totally lost. They have absolutely no control of this ship. They are scared to death. And it got to a point that it was so bad. So it's pitch black. It's storming. It's raining. It's wet. The waves are crashing. This ship is going crazy. Men are getting seasick. And it got to a point so bad, we read this last week in verse 20 because it was a highlight. It said that all hope of our being saved on the ship was gradually abandoned. All hope of our being... Luke is writing that. Luke is on this ship. Luke is with Paul. Luke has seen Paul do amazing miracles. And Luke got to a point that he was so low that, you know, we're going to die. So apparently Luke lost all hope. He was a believer. Aristarchus lost all hope. He was a believer. And probably most of the other 270 men on the ship were not Christians. So they didn't have faith in God. So they definitely lost all hope. So they were scared literally to death. It's like... You're on an airplane and you know it is going down. You've lost both engines. There's 300 people on the airplane. It's dipped its nose and it's started to make that noise. Just utter fright. They lost their appetite. They couldn't eat. They're in an utter panic. They don't know what to do. And it says they lost all hope. That was verse 20. And that's when Paul spoke up as a prophet of God. And he gave a prophecy. He said, uh, Verse 21, this is review. Paul stood up in their midst when they had lost all hope in the middle of the Mediterranean. <coughs> Excuse me. And he said, men, you ought to have followed my advice. You should have listened to what I said. Don't leave this port at Crete. But you did. Because I said if you did, there could be great damage. Verse 22, yet now I urge you to keep up your courage. Be encouraged. They have fear. What do they need? Hope and courage. He's a prisoner. Why should they even listen to Paul? Well, and then he makes this prophecy. There will be no loss of life among you, but only for the ship. So that was a prophecy. Verse 23. Well, how does he know that? 
for this very night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me. There it is. So Paul had direct revelation from an angel. So he's on this ship and an angel appears to him, but apparently nobody else saw it. So maybe it was in a vision. We don't know how that happened, but it was true. Verse 24 is interesting. The angel said, do not be afraid, Paul. Literally, in the Greek text, it's a present middle imperative, and it says, stop being afraid, Paul. Even Paul was afraid. Even he was afraid. He was human. Even though God had told him, I need to take you to Rome, he still was frail and weak and finite, like all of us. Stop being afraid afraid, Paul. So he heard the word of God. Paul was afraid. He lacked courage. He didn't know what to do. He prayed, the end of verse 24. God answered his prayer. And God promised, no one will be lost. Every man on the ship will be saved, including you. Verse 25, therefore, Paul said to all 275 passengers, keep your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been has been told to me. So Paul's discouraged just like they were. He had fear, but what turned him around? Well, he heard the word of God and he believed it. And that's what the Bible says even for us today. I don't have an angel to come to me and encourage me. So Paul had something we don't have. Personal visits from angels giving him special revelation. And what the angel gave was the word of God. And he believed the word of God and it gave him faith and increased his faith. And it was a supernatural ability to believe. So Paul had something that we don't have, angels visiting us personally. But you know what? We have something Paul didn't have. We have the entire word of God in writing. 66 books, the entire New Testament. Paul didn't have the New Testament. He wrote some of the books, but he didn't even write half the books by this time. So, yeah, Paul had something we don't have, but we have something Paul doesn't have, and that's the Word of God. And Romans ten seventeen says, faith, that's supernatural faith, another worldly faith. That's the kind of faith that unbelievers don't have. Faith comes by hearing the Word of Christ. When you are exposed to the truth of Scripture, God uses that through the Holy Spirit to give you a supernatural faith that you otherwise couldn't conjure up on your own as a human. When you hear the Word of God, it gives you faith. When you hear the Word of God, it feeds your soul. When you hear the Word of God, it's milk to your soul and also helps your thinking on a supernatural level. And that's what happened to Paul. He heard the Word of God, and his faith was increased. And we can do the same. And this was key for the Apostle Paul. Verse 25 says, as he's talking to the men, be encouraged because I believe God at his word. I believe him. Some of you don't believe God. Some of you don't even know God, but I will believe him on your behalf. That's what Paul did. Luke was struggling. He was weak. He wasn't encouraged. So Paul had to believe on Luke's behalf to encourage him. And when Luke saw Paul believing, encouraged Luke. And when Luke heard what Paul said from the word of God, then Luke was encouraged because he was a Christian and he was exposed to special revelation, the divine word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You came to church today. If you are a Christian, 
my goal was to teach the Bible, to give you the Word of God, the living Word of God out of Scripture, because I know for a fact that if you as a Christian hear the Word of God, hear the teaching of the Bible, regardless of what it is, it will feed your soul, it will encourage your thinking, and God will use it to enable you to have supernatural faith in a way that you didn't before you got here. That is awesome. That's the promise of God. And that's what happened here. You had 276 men who were ready to die. God turned it all around simply by special revelation and those willing to believe it. And so that's where they were. He said, be encouraged. An angel appeared to me and I believe him and I serve that God. I know that God. No one will die. He said, no one will die, but we must run aground on a certain island. So that's a prophecy that Paul gave as an apostle. Paul was an apostle. He was unique. He was frail. He was sinful. He was finite. Yet he was hand-selected by God to be an apostle, a representative of him. So God gave him certain abilities. I don't have, you don't have, people haven't had since the last apostle had died with John the Apostle in 99 AD. The apostles had the ability to do signs, wonders, and miracles. So says 2 Corinthians 12, 12. They got to see the resurrected Christ personally. They had abilities we don't have. They had the ability to do to give special revelation direct from heaven. They had visitations from angels. We don't. So it was unique. But we have the special revelation that they wrote down at our disposal. And it's still just as effective and supernatural. So with that, as I just wanted to bring you up to speed where we left Paul, they are now floating adrift in the dark in a vicious storm in the Mediterranean Sea. So let's pick up there and let's look at verses 27 to 44 and see what happens. See if Paul was ignorant, lying, guessing, or true to God's word and to see if God was faithful to his word and preserved all 276 passengers on this massive ship. By the way, in Acts 27, when you read it, you are struck by its distinctive uniqueness in the events, but also in the terminology. Because I'm reading through this thing and I'm having to get out a dictionary regarding all these Mariner terms, I have no idea what they're talking about. Is it bow or bow? That's how often I'm on a ship. And what is it? The stern? Is that like the side, the bottom, the top, the back? The Anyway, that's how ignorant I am. That's just one example. But you go through it and you got all this Mariner's terminology and, th- and even actions that they're doing with the sails and the cables and the tackle and the dinghy and the behavior. And and this has this passage, this chapter has been scrutinized for 2,000 years in history, not just by Christians, but by secular scholars in ancient seafaring to examine it, first of all, to see if it's even credible. Because people like to say, well, if it's in the Bible, it's, it's fairy tale, it's make-believe, it's not true, it's not accurate, it's not historical. But just so you know, Entire dissertations, scholarly dissertations and books have been written just on Acts 27 with respect to a mariner's perspective and point of view. I I ordered and got a book this week, an entire book by a scholar in, I think, around 1850, Dr. Smith or whatever, who was a, a mariner. And the book is titled The Shipwreck of the Apostle Paul. It's like 200 pages long. The back of it has all these scholarly dissertations written by scholars on the details of being a mariner and its terminology and what ocean life is like and the weather patterns there in the Mediterranean, in history and even currently. It's, it's, I can't even comprehend it. 
but I'm reading through it. It's amazing. And it has met all scrutiny for 2,000 years. As a matter of fact, it's pretty much the consensus is that this chapter is the most detailed, graphic, extended, accurate representation of ancient seafaring of anything in writing that we know of. The only thing that even comes close, and it's not even close because the joke is Homer's Odyssey. Other than that, there's nothing else that even compares. And this Dr. John uh, Smith, not John Smith, uh, forgot his name, but his last name is Smith, he, he went and he lived on the island of Malta for three months as part of his research, which is where we're going to end up today, the island, in the middle of the Mediterranean. But one of the first things that people do to see if it's even historical, this whole chapter, is just start looking at the places, the ports, the names, the cities, the islands. Are these even literal? Do they exist? Are they real? Are they historical? Do they still exist today? Or is it all a fairy tale? And you could, you, you could do that yourself. Every one of these terms is real. Caesarea, that still exists today. I have been there. The island of Crete, that still exists today. Very well known. Fairhavens, Snidus, Phoenix, Cauda, or Clauda. Every one of these names is still identifiable, and it exists today. We even have people in our church, members in our church, who have been to Malta. They have sailed on the Mediterranean and been to the little island of Malta which is where they're going to land today. Malta is actually a country today in the middle of the sea, in nowhere. It's one of the smallest countries in the world. And they're headed to Rome. We've heard of that. So everything about it is historical. And then you go into the nitty-gritty detail and the granular study of nautical terminology and processes, and every one of those is verifiable in terms of how you do things on the sea. And Luke wasn't a sailor, a professional sailor, but he was an eyewitness. He's on there. He's a, his research was, he was a professional researcher and historian. So he's on there. He experienced, and then he's writing. He's probably interviewing these sailors in the aftermath. Okay, what were you guys doing there? Why were you pulling the cables? What are those called? Oh, it's, it's bow. It's not bow. Okay, why do you spell it B-O-W? Okay, bow. And so Luke is writing all this down. So as you read it, it's like kind of a layman's terminology, but at the same time, there is technical terminology we can't understand but it's consistent with being a professional at sea. So that's just one thing that needs to be taken note of, that the historical accuracy is down to precision and detail, and we can also trust it for its spiritual truth that it imparts. So let's go ahead and look at that. So I've broken up the 27 uh, to 44 verses into three points, and now we're going to go ahead and catch up with Paul, who's adrift at sea, and we're going to sail with him, and we're going to move rather quickly because this storm is bad. Are you ready? I hope you have a life vest. Here we go. Paul is shipped to Rome, part two. Not Paul sailing to Rome. Paul going. Paul is shipped. He is considered cargo. He is a prisoner. That's his identity. He's being shipped by Rome as a prisoner. Just one main theme throughout this whole chapter, really, is that God's providence extends to the just and the unjust. Like I said, there's probably three believers out of 276. So it could be that 270 of these guys don't know God. They're not saved. They're pagans. They're not Christians. And there's three people at least that know God and love Jesus. They're God's own. They're in God's family. The rest aren't. But God is good to everybody on the ship. He saves everybody physically. God is good, not just to believers, but to the unjust as well. That's God's providence. If you look at the word providence in your bulletin, is there a smaller word you see in there? Provide. What does providence mean? It means God provides. In a practical way, in the course of life, when his creatures 
are in need and when they're not in need. God provides. He provides literal physical things like food, and he also provides safety and protection. That's what providence means, and this is the providence of God, and it extends to all of his creation. And so let's look at examples of God's provision and his providence throughout this amazing story. So let's pick them up in the middle of the sea, bottom of the Mediterranean. It is dark. It is black. Days have gone by now. We know that many days, one day, two days, three days have gone by since they left the port of Crete as they're being tossed in, to and fro on the sea, pitch black. Day three has gone by, and then it says a long time has gone by now. And then actually, verse 27, so it is now 14 days since they left the port of Crete and got hit by a typhoon, which carried them out into the middle of the Mediterranean. And over the course of 14 days, for the most part, all 276 people on the ship haven't eaten a thing. They've probably had some water or some kind of liquid to sustain them, but they haven't eaten any food. Why? Because they were scared to death, literally. Verse 21, I think it is, says, the reason they didn't eat, the beginning of verse 21 says, because they had asitia, asisha, asatia. I don't know how to pronounce it. Depends upon where you put the accent mark, but it's, that's the Greek word, asatia. If you look that up in a medical dictionary, it's right next to anorexia. It has to do with your total lack of desire to have any food. That's what they had in verse 21. They had no desire at all to eat food because they were scared literally to death. They had no appetite. And they went that way for 14 days. They're on the verge of or headed in the direction of starving to death, let alone drowning to death. So let's pick up a verse 27 through 32. They're scared to death. Paul tries to encourage them. He says these words, but they need more than words. And that's what God provides. Verse 27. But when the 14th night came, the 14th night after having left Crete, being in the midst of this storm, the midst of darkness, smashing waves, horrendous winds, deadly torrents, no food. But when the 14th night came, as we, Luke says, we were being driven about, there it is, not in the Adriatic Sea, that's an that's a bad translation. Cross out the word sea. It's not even in the Greek text. The King James gets it right. As we were driven about in the Adria. That's a part of the western part of the Mediterranean Sea. It's not the Adriatic Sea, which is up north. The, the Greek text doesn't say Adriatic Sea. So a New American Standard got it wrong. King James had it right. So they're floating around in Adria, which is just by the island of Malta, which is just south of Italy. That's where they are. They don't know it at the time. Luke's writing in retrospect. At about midnight, after sailing for 14 days, not knowing where they are, at about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. The sailors, they are professionals. They have a keen ear. They have a keen sense. They're trained professionals. They know the waters. And so all of a sudden, about midnight, whoa, wait a minute. I think I hear, we might be near land. How would they possibly know that? Because of the waves smashing on to the beach, they could tell. That's what they sensed. That's so why it's the sailors who sensed that. It wasn't the prisoners sensed. They heard land nearby. No, they, they didn't have a clue. Or the guys who were responsible for the grain thought there was land. No, they didn't. It was the sailors. And sure enough, there is land nearby. It's probably a couple miles away at this point. But they can hear it. This is awesome. They began to surmise that they were approaching some land. You know what that land they're approaching is the island of Malta, which has almost a half a million people living on it today which is a little dinky country and part of the U.N. even today. And has a history stretching back all the way before the Greeks. 
as an important little island. They took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms, says the New American Standard. 20 fathoms. I had no idea what 20 fathoms was. How about you? I had to look it up. 120 feet. The NIV helps me out, man. <laughs> NIV says 120 feet. Thank you, NIV. People pick on the NIV. Come on. Just say what it means, 120 feet. How did they do that? They took soundings. However sailors do that, they drop something down and they listen and splash and they do their math and you got to know physics and whatever else, all that stuff I hate, math and whatever, the equations, and, and that's how they figured it out. And they're sailing a little further and lo and behold, boom, they took another sounding and now it's 90 feet. It went from 120 feet to 90 feet. They are approaching land. Good news. Fearing not, verse 29, that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks. Okay, so there's jagged rocks sticking up. They can't see them. It's dark. It's night. It's always dangerous. That's how the Titanic went down, by the way. Same thing could happen here, and they know that. They are experienced. Paul knows that because Paul said he had been in three shipwrecks. Probably on the Mediterranean. Paul knows the risks here. That's why he said way back at Crete 14 days ago, do not leave this harbor. They didn't listen to him. So they were fearing that they might run aground somewhere on the rocks. They cast four anchors from the stern. That's the back of the boat, I learned. And they wished for daybreak. Some translations say they prayed. It can be translated as prayer. Maybe some of them got religious all of a sudden. They found religion in the foxhole, right? We're going to die. Dear God, used to be an atheist. Or maybe they're getting religious because they just heard Paul give this prophecy. Which gave them an element of hope. You won't die. If you do what you're supposed to do, listen to me, you won't die. So it said they, they prayed. Prayed for daybreak. Prayed for light. They prayed for light. They hadn't seen light in like two weeks. They prayed for light and guess what happens? They're going to get light real soon. God answered a very practical prayer. Here, being gracious, providing a generous God. Verse 30. If it was prayer, you got a whole bunch of guys who aren't Christians praying. Wait, can unbelievers pray? Yeah, they can. Does God hear their prayers? Hmm, I don't know. I guess when he wants to. Every unbeliever is heard who becomes a believer. God hears at least one unbeliever's prayer every time, and that's when you're an unbeliever and you ask God to forgive you. He hears that prayer and he saves you. And there are examples in the Old Testament where an unbeliever, a wicked man actually prayed and God honored that. Listen to that prayer. Okay. So it's up to God's discretion. But as the sailors were trying... So get this. So they put down anchors in the back of the boat and draw everybody's attention there to the back of the boat. It's a big, massive ship. And the sailors, they got something fishy going on. Hey, let's set the uh, let's have our assistants put the anchors out the back of the boat. And meanwhile, psst, hey, let's escape out the front of the boat with the, on our little dinghy and our raft. And that's what they tried to do, the sailors. Verse 30, but as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship, it's the sailors, they had a plan from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to, intending to lay out the anchors from the, the bow there. And so they're trying to sneak off. Paul catches them. Paul the criminal. Somehow he sees them. Paul said to the centurion, that's the guy in charge. He's the one with all the authority. See, Paul knew where the authority was. He doesn't go to the captain of the ship because he was probably in on the conspiracy. He goes to the highest authority on the ship, and that is the centurion, who is responsible to Nero. And he goes to the centurion, uh, verse 31, 
<clears throat> and of the soldiers, unless these these sissies, these sailors who are trying to leave the ship, sneak off, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Mr. Centurion, you're going to die. If they escape, you die. Now, at this, earlier on, we saw that the centurion did not listen to Paul in verse 11. Paul said, we better not leave Crete. And then the centurion asked for everybody's advice. Okay, Paul said, we shouldn't leave. Uh, the sailor says we should. The captain says we should. The guy that wants to make a whole bunch of money with the wheat says we should. Uh, the weather isn't too bad right now. Paul, we're not listening to you. Let's go. Boom. So the centurion didn't listen to Paul. Then all this transpires, and then now all of a sudden the centurion, he is going to listen to Paul. This Paul guy apparently knows what he's talking about. Even though Paul's a criminal. But Paul is God's man. Verse 32, so the centurion obeys. The centurion gives orders to his soldiers. You know what? Cut those ships down. Get those guys back in the ship. Nobody leaves this ship. So the centurion takes charge. No, actually, Paul's in charge. No, actually, God is in charge. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes and the ship's boat and let it fall away. That's the prohibition given by the apostle Paul as he was moved by the Spirit of God, speaking as an apostle and a prophet of God among 276 men. Do not leave or you die. You do what I tell you to do. And you already saw the consequences if you don't. That's awesome. This is God's man. Paul's a faithful leader. Paul is a leader. He was a prisoner. He was a nobody what he got on. But he begins to emerge and rise as a leader. What is a leader? Someone with the title? No. Someone who actually leads. It's just in their DNA. People follow. They lead. They make wise decisions. They make hard decisions. That's a leader. A leader rises to the top most when circumstances are difficult and everybody else is panicking and doesn't know what to do and lost in confusion. And then a leader steps forth and is decisive. And a spiritual leader is not only decisive, he trusts God. He believes God on behalf of other people who cannot believe. And that's what you see Paul doing here. He's believing on behalf of others who cannot believe. And he leads the way. He paves the way. He becomes a model to follow. That's why he told the Corinthians, be, ex- be followers of me as I also am of Christ. That is bold. That's, that's courageous. That is also frightening when Paul says that. Because it's like, well, I'm a pastor. Am I able to say that? Be followers of me as I am of Christ. But a spiritual leader should be able to say that to one degree or another. I also believe that a spiritual leader needs to have the gift of faith. First Corinthians says one of the spiritual gifts is faith. And that is the supernatural ability to believe God at his word. The supernatural ability to believe special direct revelation, especially in the light of trials and circumstances that are hard to believe. So the gift of faith, 1 Corinthians, is the supernatural ability to believe God, to trust God, to envision things about the future regarding God. But most of all, taking his word at face value and believing it, despite everybody else rejecting it, despite everybody else saying it is ridiculous, despite everybody else saying it is absurd, taking God's word at face value. That is the gift of faith. That's what Paul did here. An angel spoke a simple word of God that actually was kind of absurd and ridiculous. You know what, Paul? Everybody is going to survive. That is That was absurd in light of the circumstances. No one should have survived this shipwreck in the Mediterranean at that time of the year. No one. And yet he believed. God at his word. Face value. And that's why I think every pastor, elder, spiritual leader needs to have the gift of faith. You either got it or you don't. God gave it to you or you didn't. 
because you're going to be in positions where you've got to believe God's word at face value on behalf of your people and other Christians. That you might be able to lead them in hard and difficult times. Because everybody was discouraged. Everybody was down. Everybody was at the point of death. They were all, they had no hope. And here Paul gets the word. He believes he has the gift of faith. It's one of the qualifications, I believe, in Titus chapter 1, by the way, holding fast to the word. Holding fast to the word. Having faith in God's word. That's where faith comes from. That's what makes you spiritually strong. That is a qualification of an elder, of a pastor, of a shepherd. So that you can lift other people up. They have other gifts. That's a great challenge. I wouldn't want to be in ministry or a pastor if I didn't have the gift of faith. I I hope I have the gift of faith. Otherwise, I don't know how you could do it. I don't know how you could survive and persevere under the challenges and trials. So I think about, I was thinking about my own life. Okay, Paul had the gift of faith, every spiritual leader. Do I have the gift of faith? Do I ever get depressed? Here, I'll pull this uh, curtain back a little bit so you can see a little of the psychology of Pastor McManus. Do I ever get depressed? Yeah, actually, I do. I've actually had Christians uh, that know me ask me, why I suffer with depression, Pastor Cliff. And I know you never get depressed. <laughs> you know, I'm start laughing. Seriously? Do you really think I don't get depressed? No, I, I do get depressed and frequently. Really? Yeah. But here's typically, I can say this because I've got 30 years of life to review and summarize from. And here's how it works with me. I'll be in the midst of a, something discouraging whether it's something in my own life, my own weakness, or relational with somebody else, or somebody just utterly defying the Word of God, that really discourages me. When you've got like a majority of the evangelical world saying something isn't true in the Bible that on face value, no, it's true, like the growing belief now from evangelicals that Adam and Eve were not real people, that, that actually really discourages me. That I hear more and more, it's from prestigious highfalutin, high-ranking, influential, so-called conservative evangelicals more and more singing that chorus. And I, So when I first heard that, I kind of, oh, I was a little taken aback and yikes, really? Whoa. And I felt powerless and kind of caved over in a corner and, oh, okay, maybe, and their argument is, well, you know, it's not a salvation issue. We should just be worried about the salvation issue. Get the gospel straight. Whether Adam existed, that's, uh, you can take it or leave it. It doesn't have any impact. So then I get discouraged. That's just a theological issue. And then uh, with time, uh, I understand that people pray for me as a pastor and that if I have the gift of faith, and then I get my nose in the Bible when I get discouraged and depressed. I don't get depressed for long periods of time, but there are short periods of just tremendous discouragement. There are times where I don't feel like getting out of bed. But when I do, eventually, I try to get into God's Word. And as I read God's Word, then He fills me up. And then He overrides my depression. And then I get this amazing, supernatural, unbelievable confidence in God's Word that is like, there's no way I could have conjured that up on my own. And a week ago, I didn't think that or couldn't even imagine that I believe or think this way. And then I go and I, boom, I take that heresy head on. And it's not because uh, anything in me, it's, wow, God just moved me to do that and it's over something simple i read genesis and it says adam and eve that's where we came from in romans 5 where paul said that sin entered the world through adam's disobedience and sin reigned from adam to moses and moses was a real guy and the law reigned from moses to jesus they're in the same verse adam moses jesus that's what god's word says i believe it and that encourages my faith 
And then I get over my depression for a day. And then the next day comes along and I have something new to be depressed about. But anyway. So that's just the gift. What I was trying to emphasize is the gift of faith. And that's how it worked for the Apostle Paul. He was a normal human being. He struggled. He was weak. Man, he was fearing to the death in verse 24. And was encouraged by God's word. Okay, let's go on to point number two after the prohibition. Nobody leaves this ship. Then there's the preservation, verse 33 to 37, as God is being faithful, fulfilling his promise. Until the day was about to dawn, oh, wow, sun is going to finally show up. Paul keeps speaking. Paul is encouraging them all. See, it didn't matter. He, that's, he just loved people. It didn't matter what, uh, if you were a Roman centurion with all the authority and power or a Roman soldier who could kill you with his sword. Or these prisoners, fellow prisoners, who were actually, in fact, criminals. Some of them deserving death. And these money, hungry, no doubt, some guys that just want to make a buck on this trip. And then who knows who else on that trip. He didn't even know half these, most of these people. And yet he loves them. He was praying for their salvation physically. And then he also wants to give them spiritual truth. And now he wants to just encourage them in a practical way. These guys haven't eaten in two weeks. We don't just take care of people's spiritual needs we got to talk about the practical ones as well. And so until uh, Don was about to break, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food. After all, it was a grain ship. There's food all over the place. And he said, today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, abstaining from food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food. So he kept on encouraging them. Man, you guys got to eat. You got to eat. Come on. No, we can't eat. I, I'm too busy or we're going to die or whatever. No, man, you got to eat. This is important. You got to I already told you the promise. God spoke through an angel. It's going to be okay. You need to eat. This is practical. And so Paul also tends to their practical needs, which is very important. Because, you know, Christians, I talked about this last time of how we just want to spiritualize everything. The only thing that matters is spiritual. No, the practical matters too. Oh, I feel terrible, Pastor, and I'm having visions and dreams and weird things and I can't sleep and I'm restless and I'm depressed and I go in and out and I think weird things and then you inquire and you find out they have like three hours of sleep a night. Well, I'd be feeling the same way too. Why don't you try to get seven hours of sleep? Or one of my mentors at the seminary, his testimony was when he was in the Navy, uh, he ended up he was going so crazy and nervous all the time and couldn't control himself and didn't know what was going on. And his wife saw a dramatic change in his psyche that was bad to the bad. They're going to boot him out of the Navy. And finally, he, he goes and sees a psychologist. Then he sees a psychiatrist. And it turns out, and somebody just happened to have the sense to ask him, so tell me about your daily routine. Well, it turns out, do you drink coffee in the morning? Yeah, I do. How much do you have? Like a cup or two? Uh, I have uh, four pots by noon. That is a true story. Four pots by noon. Yeah, extra dark. Oh, okay, no wonder you're messed up. Stop drinking so much coffee. He said that changed his life. <laughs> Two cups before lunch, no more. He was the dean of the seminary. He wasn't the dean of the seminary at that time. Um, <laughs> he was in the Navy at the time. So Paul's encouraging, man, you got to eat. Verse 34, therefore, I encourage you to take some food for this is for your preservation. This is for your safety. This is for your health. This is for your good. You're not just a spiritual being. You are a physical being. We are 100% physical and spiritual beings. Bodily discipline is of some value, said Paul. Not no value, some value. 
Not a hair from the head of any of you are going to perish. It's okay. We're going to survive. We're going to, we're going to land on an island. That's okay. Man, relax. Be encouraged. Eat. Having said this, he took some bread, gave thanks to God. Eucharisto. Eucharist. This is not communion. He just gave thanks. Dear God. Every time you eat and have a meal, you should give thanks to God. Why? Because the Bible says give thanks, number one. But every time Jesus ate, 100% of the time, as far as I recall, he always thanked the Father for the food that it was given to him. And Paul's a good example, too. They're about to eat. They gave thanks to God. God blesses that. But literally, in the book of Timothy, God blesses the food and you in a special way when you recognize where your sustenance is coming from. So he gave, look at this. He didn't just give thanks to God. He gave thanks in, in the presence of all. Hear ye, hear ye. 275, gather around. We are going to eat. We're going to have a fellowship meal right here on the ship. And I'm going to pray to, and he prayed to the creator of the universe, thanking Yahweh, almighty God, for his provision. And everybody heard it. Paul was bold. He loved his Lord. He was a powerful witness. He wasn't afraid or ashamed or embarrassed to pray in public. I don't know if that ever happens to you. You're at the restaurant. Hey, why don't you pray? And then you look around. Wait a Anybody going to be watching me? I have a friend, pastor friend, who when it's time to pray in the restaurant, he likes to stand up and pray. When If he senses that any Christian around the table is a little nervous or embarrassed about praying, he catches it and notices, oh, what, is there something wrong? Are you ashamed to be a Christian? Like, Let us pray. <laughs> and then you never go to lunch with that guy again. That's a true story too. So Paul prays in the presence of Paul, broke it, began to eat. And this is important. He's already said two times, eat, eat. Apparently they didn't. Kept saying it, kept saying, you got to model. If you're a leader, you got to model it. Okay, you know what, guys? I'm in the ship too. I'm a prisoner. I'm in chains. I believe we're going to survive. It's time to eat. And he starts eating. And then as a result, they all follow. That is a good leader. You model it. All of them were encouraged. They saw Paul eat. And they themselves, finally, they took food. Verse 37, and all of us in the ship were about 276 persons. It's amazing how Paul just rises to the occasion, through the power of the Spirit of God as a shepherd and as a leader. So as pro, we go from his prohibition to their preservation and then finally to the provision. And this is the fulfilled promise that God makes through Paul, verse 38 to 44. When the day came, so maybe there was light as the dawn was breaking in, Oh, verse 38, sorry. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. Okay, why did they start throwing the wheat into the sea finally after 14 days as they were nearing land? Because they wanted to lighten the ship because then it would rise up out of the water and you have less under the water, which means you can get closer to the beach. So the higher your ship goes, the closer you can get to the beach, which was their destination. And so that's what they're doing, trying to lighten it as much as possible. Verse 39, when day came... Oh, by the way... This is very important. Verse 27. Go back. When the 14th night came, they were in the Adria part of the Mediterranean Sea when they approached land. And the land is going to be the island of Malta. And they have established pretty much from research and even the wind trends today over in the Mediterranean that when there are monsoon-like hurricane winds coming from a different direction because luke several times puts the direction it's coming from a southerly wind a westerly wind and a northeastern wind he mentions all of those and they're trying to say they are now adrift on the mediterranean sea off of the island of crete 
on a place called Clauda, is where they were. And then they drifted for 14 days, not even knowing where they were. And after 14 days, they ended up by the island of Malta. And mathematically, they have shown and proven that if you were in that part of the Mediterranean Sea with that kind of weather and that wind blowing in that direction, with that size of a ship, that you would drift in a certain direction going west about, I think they said, 39 miles a day. 36 to 39 miles a day. Times 13 or 14 would take you about 500 miles going west, which puts you just outside the island of Malta after the course of 14 days. I mean, it is down to the detail of accuracy. That's just one example of many. That's why God had Luke put it in there. This is a true story. So they lighten the boat, verse 39. When day had come, they could not recognize the land. They didn't know where they were because they hadn't seen sun or stars for days. But they did observe a bay with a beach. And they resolved to drive the ship onto the beach if they could. There's still quite a distance. By the way, the, the weather hasn't settled down. It is still a massive, deathly storm. Still just as severe as verse 18, being violently storm-tossed. That has not ceased throughout this story. Just because they can see land, it could be miles away. They're not safe yet. Verse 40, so they cast off the anchors, make it lighter even more. They left them in the sea while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. Verse 41, but, but striking a reef or a shoal or a sandbar or a place, says King James, and that's what the Greek says, they, they struck a place in the water, something sticking up, just smashed in, the boat just smashed into it, the front of the boat, and the boat got stuck. And it was devastating. And then it's just being still being storm-tossed storm -tossed and blown, and the wind is eventually just going to rip this massive ship to pieces. And it all happened right here in verse 41. But striking the reef where two seas met, they ran, so they're in the vortex of this vicious, wicked storm, and they ran the vessel aground, and the 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 bow stuck fast, that's what it's referring to, and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force. So, so now the, the ship is just shattering to pieces. Now it is time to panic from what they're saying. Verse 42, the soldier's plan, even despite everything Paul had said and the prophecy that he made, first the sailors had a bad plan, let's leave. Now the soldier, the Roman soldiers had a plan, verse 42. The soldier's plan was to kill all the prisoners. Okay, this ship is going down. Let's get in the water. And uh, if any of these prisoners happen to escape with their lives, then that's on our head. So we've got to kill these prisoners and now. And that's what they were going to do. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, which would include Paul. He was a prisoner. So that none of them would swim away and escape. Verse 43, well, the centurion, the guy in charge, caught wind of that and knew that, wow, I'm responsible for Paul to take him to Nero. We ain't killing him. So, But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention. Okay, nobody's killing anybody at this point. So the centurion has been won over to the word of Paul. We're going to do what Paul said. Nobody leaves the ship. Nobody dies. And Paul's already said, not a hair of our head will be lost. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. Okay, anybody that can swim, jump and swim to shore. 
So this centurion was a good leader as well. Verse 44, and the rest should follow. And the rest of us, just grab what you can and hang on for your life. Grab planks, grab whatever floats. And others on various things from the ship. And that's what they did. And so it happened. That's what everybody did. As the ship was shattering to pieces going down. And so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. Absolutely amazing. That is a miracle through the process of what is called God's providence. There are two kinds of miracles in the Bible. There's supernatural intervention, immediate intervention, special revelation, supernatural miracles, like Jesus walking on water, Lazarus being raised from the dead, Paul bringing someone else back to life. Those are apostolic and sign miracles. Then there are other miracles that God does providentially through the circumstances of life in keeping with his will. It's a different kind of miracle. It is a miracle nonetheless. It is the working of God. An answered prayer is a miracle of sorts. Because it's God intervening in our life to accomplish his will, and many times in keeping with the prayer of our heart. And that's what happened here. Every single one of these 276 men made it safely to land. That was a providential miracle worked out by God himself in perfect keeping with his will. And that, you know what? God isn't sending angels to your bedside and my bedside today with special messages. If you believe that, then I don't know. That's uh, that's a different conversation. But if you need special revelation, be content with Scripture. And we don't have apostles going around doing miracles like the apostles did in Paul. But we do have God working providentially in our lives, and many times miraculously so. You look at an event in your life and you think, man, look where I am today. Look back through 10 years of history of how God accomplished that. He used this decision. He used this roadblock. He used this disappointment. He used this great thing leading me through all these roads and doors and paths I never would have chosen. And he's brought me to this place for this event right now, which is a testimony that God is in total, perfect control of all of history. And you are a part of his plan as am I. And I want to close on this verse because you know what? It never gets old. And that's Romans 8, 28. Let's, let's close on that to encourage your heart. If you're a Christian and you know God, you are in his family. And this this verse, Romans 8.28, is a promise for you. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter how horrible the trials are, in the words of the author of Hebrews, you're not dead yet. That's a free translation. But he says, you haven't shed any blood yet. You're still alive. God is with you. You're his child. He knows your circumstances. He is faithful. Romans 8, 28, and we know, this is Christians, we know with confidence, with certainty, not maybe, certainty, that's what it means. We absolutely know with unshakable confidence that God, see there it is, God causes all things, good, bad, and ugly in my life to work together, that's providence, the circumstances of life, for good, there it is. Well, this doesn't look good now, but it will be if you know God and love God and believe in God and belong to God, it will be good. His perfect plan. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. That's the key. And the only way to love God is to know Jesus Christ personally. If you don't love Jesus Christ personally, you do not know God. You don't love God. That's clear from Scripture. For those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Boy, that's a great verse to go to lunch on, isn't it? And with that, let's go ahead and pray. and Thank, thank the Father. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for... 
of the Christmas season and a way to think about you and the birth of Christ in a very specific way for the time of worship we've had, for our wonderful children's choir this morning and the reminder from your word of how you are such a good God, providential, caring for the just and the unjust alike. And most of all, we thank you for the good news of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you all the praise and the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.